broadcasting live from the Santa Lucia Highlands through the heart of the Casterville Artichoke Fields, westward to the Elkhorn Slough, and south to the rugged Big Sur coastline. You're listening to What's the Plan? A weekly discussion with local thought leaders about the future of Monterey County. And now, here's your host, Mr. Paul Wyant. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, my guest is Shabon Green from Hospice Giving Foundation. You can find out more about Shabon and Hospice Giving Foundation at hospicegiving.org. First, let me remind you that you can listen to all our shows going back to the very first episode on podcast platforms like iTunes, Spotify, or you can also listen to the show on our website, whatstheplanmonterey.com. I'm Paul Wyant of Express Employment Professionals in Monterey County. If you want to learn more about how we can help your business with employment and staffing, please give me a call today, 831-920-1230, or go to expresspros.com. Shabon, welcome to the program. Can you tell me a little bit about your history in Monterey County? How, how did you end up in, the, in Monterey County? Personally? Yeah, personally. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Um, so um, I'm originally from New York, grew up on Long Island, and moved to San Francisco when I was in my 20s. And I was working in inpatient psychiatric care at a couple of different hospitals up in the Bay Area, um, a, a hospital called Villa Fairmont, and then at Alta Bay Tarek Hospital. And um, that's where I met my husband. And we lived in, and he's a psychiatrist, and we lived in um, San Mateo for a while. And our daughter was born in 89 in San Mateo when we were living there. And by now, I had not been working. I'd been working in across the Bay at Alta Bay Tarek, and she was born in August, and the 89 earthquake shook. Mm. And I whisked her out of her crib, out of her swing. And we had had a house that my husband had down in Carmel Valley that was sort of our weekend place. Mm -hmm. And um, when I realized it was five o'clock in the afternoon and I would have normally been on the Bay Bridge if I hadn't had a six-week-old at home. And the first calls we had were from family and the next ones were from all of our neighbors down in Carmel Valley. I think we realized that we had family of a sort in Carmel Valley. All of our family was out of state, but we had people in Carmel Valley who were truly our extended family. And so we started coming back down again and came more frequently and made a decision pretty much right after the 89 earthquake in October to move down permanently in um, December. So we came down to Carmel Valley where our friends and neighbors were, and it was a wonderful, wonderful move. We're still very close friends with most of the people that were in that neighborhood and um, just started to make our, develop our roots and develop our, our relationship to this community. My husband worked briefly with CHOM, but has been in private practice most of the time he's been down here. I started working in um, uh, development work, fundraising and development work, and um, spent 11 years at CASA of Monterey County. I was their development director and their and their executive director. And um, then I um, got a call from a friend who said it was time to look at a different job. And I said, "What do you mean? I have a job. I don't need to go anywhere else. <laughs> I have I have a job." And she said, "I think this would be great for you." And she introduced me to Hospice Giving Foundation, and um, there I am. So our two children grew up here. Um, our daughter has been with us for a few months during COVID, but she and her boyfriend live. In New York, in Brooklyn, and our son lives up in Mendocino. And um, we're back out in Carmel Valley. We lived in Carmel for a little time, but went back to 
to Carmel Valley and we love it out here. That, that's fantastic. I always wondered what it would be like being married to a psychiatrist because wh- whenever there was a disagreement, you'd, you'd, you'd have to really watch yourself. You'd, it would be, it would be a, a touchy thing. It, it's it's got to be fun, I bet. So, uh, Learn a few things, right? So you could be at a, you could, so you could level up the playing field something. But. <laughs> yes, He's a wonderful psychiatrist. He's been in um, private practice, mostly with children and adolescents for his whole career. He still he sees adults as well, but um, really has devoted himself to developing a wonderful practice here. That's so. that is fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about the mission of Voices for Children and uh, and of Casa? Yeah. So Casa's mission is to um, serve the children in the foster care system with advocacy and to ensure that the best interests of the child really mu- remains at the center of the the. Um, at the center of whatever is done for that child. So a lot of things happen when you're a kid in the foster care system, when you've gone into the dependency system and you've been separated from your parents. There's just a whole lot of activity and some of it's legal, some of it's social services. And sometimes the kids can get a little lost. Um, But when there's a CASA involved, they make sure that that child is front and center and that all the decisions that are made are really made with the best interests of that child at heart. So that's really what CASA is. And I've been gone from there since 2013. Um, when I came over to Hospice Giving Foundation, but I actually serve on their board of directors now as well. Yeah, when I was younger, we I worked for a state park in Colorado, and we would have foster kids, and we would build trails and stuff with them. It was I was eighteen at the time, but it, and they were maybe seventeen or sixteen, so they were virtually the same age. It was really a, it was kind of a rewarding experience. It's kind of interesting. It um, is a rewarding experience, yeah. and I'll tell you, I thought that that was where I was going to finish out my career. And when this opportunity came along, I was talking to my sister, and she's in New York, and she said, "You know, you've devoted a lot of years to that, but if you could." do something to improve what happens for people when they're dying and at end of life. She said, if you remember how our parents' experiences were, and they were very difficult. She said, if you can do anything for them, this is why you're being asked to look at that job and do something different and important for another group of people that sometimes need that kind of help and support. Absolutely. So as as executive director and and president of organizations like this, I imagine that that some of your uh, some of your work is technical in nature, but probably a lot of it is sales and outreach. And can you describe like the skill set of of someone who is a CEO or a, you know executive director of of these kind of um, nonprofits? What kind of skill set are because it, it seems like it would be a really diverse skill set that you'd need. I, I would say you're right that it is a pretty diverse skill set, and some of it is is, as you say, it's technical. You have to have administrative skills. You have to have financial acumen. You have to know how to run a business um, because a nonprofit is a business. And um, you need to be able to approach it from a strategic approach and have a longer vision than this month or this week and figure out how you're going to actualize the mission of the organization and bring the organization forward. So the skills to do that really... Um, I, I, I think the skills are just the, the, the having the capacity to be able to be analytical, be evaluative, um, be a builder of coalitions and teams and bridge the relationship between boards and staff and understand those relationships because those are quite nuanced and, and unique as well. Um, there's a there's oftentimes you'll hear somebody say, well, oh, I worked in the for-profit sector. I could do nonprofit work any day. And I always caution them to say, you know, you could, 
but you really probably need to have some additional training and guidance because it is a different set of dynamics. When you're working with the public and your constituency base and your donor base, and you're also working with, in our instance, the agencies that we fund and support and the real direct frontline providers of care, and you're working with the boards of directors and the community, you have a lot of interfacing to do and you have a lot to balance and a lot to attend to in equal kind of ways. Um, not necessarily every day is it equal, but equal in the sense that it's a it's a broad vision and you can't be too narrowly in the weeds, even though some days you are, because <laughs> that's how work is. <laughs> I imagine. It's a year in, so going back to like 2013 and that time frame, and you're taking over the Hospice Giving Foundation. Mm-hmm. What, what was the state of the nonprofit then, of the Hospice Giving Foundation? then and like what were the what was kind of like the goals of the organization and how did you how did maybe you have to redirect it or how did things you know how did you have to paint the vision then and and how have you realized that now and, and can describe the the intermediate seven years well one of the things i will say is it was in wonderful condition when i got here um it was a really really well-run organization with a really fine board of directors so part of my part of my mission was to sustain that make sure we didn't lose that strength because it had a long history and it had a a good a long run of great stability and excellent management so i had to make sure that i could maintain that because sometimes when there's a a transition from a long-term ceo to a new person there can be a rocky start so it was to be humble enough to learn from what my predecessor did and to see how she built and created the organization and be thoughtful enough to think ahead and think what can i do differently and what does this organization and really really what does the community need this organization to do to be better for the community so um you know it, it was a matter of taking stock and really looking at that um learning from my board members who had been there for a long time what their expectations were what they wanted to see happen in the organization because they knew they'd been there they would watched it over the years um so we looked at a few things. One of them was um, trying to um, heighten the public profile of Hospice Giving Foundation. When I first came on, um, the name, the legal name of the organization was Hospice Foundation. And it was very confusing to people because they thought we were a direct service hospice patient care provider. So we did a fair amount of work with marketing firms to examine the um, the messaging and the structure of the organ, the the way the organization was presented to the community, language we use, all of that, and that's when we came to the decision to shift to the term Hospice Giving Foundation and make a legal name change. We also looked at the imagery you mentioned to me in our small talk before we got started that you thought we had a great website. Well, that was part of that strategic look is to how do we create a website that's talking about a topic that people don't want to talk about. We're talking about end of life, death and dying. How do we create a website that invites the, the viewer in and makes it a topic that's accessible and and it's not so hard to talk about. It's not so hard to lean in a little to that subject matter. So 
in addition to the name, we had to work very thoughtfully with the marketing and the web developers and the strategic teams to create that kind of messaging and the wording and the language that would be appropriate. Then we had to look at how are we furthering the impact of this foundation in the community? What are the relationships with the organizations we grant funds to? How can we bring those organizations together? And what can we do to even make a greater, longer-term impact and a a, a more sustained footprint on the community? Um, That also had to do with financial um, matters. So we had to make sure we raised enough funds and built up our endowments to be here Mm -hmm. for the long haul and that we weren't in a position where we could only go so far. So that was another piece that we worked together very strategically on. Um, And then we looked a little bit like right now, each year we look a little bit of what some of the the more pressing dynamics and needs are in the community. How do we reach deeper and how do we make our impact more more, um, lasting? Okay, well, let's take a quick break. I've been talking to Siobhan Green with Hospice Giving Foundation. You can find out more about Siobhan and Hospice Giving Foundation at hospicegiving.org. And uh, we'll be back after the break to talk more about their mission and how you can help out. So stay tuned. One company is on a mission to put a million people to work each year. Sounds like a big number, doesn't it? Not to express employment professionals. We take pride in connecting the right people with the right company. Express Employment Professionals is on a mission to put a million people to work each year. Let us help. We'll open doors for you. For great employees, call Monterey County Express Employment Professionals, 831-920-1230. That's 831-920-1230. You're listening to What's the Plan with your host, Paul Wyant. Now let's go ahead and get back to more of the program with Paul and his guest here on Power Talk 1460 and 101 FM. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it. So let's uh, jump right back into the conversation and getting to the specifics of of what it is the the foundation does. Uh, Your website, again, yeah, is great and it talks a lot. I mean, I I would encourage people listening to just do a deep dive on the website because we, we probably can't cover all of this. But can you describe what, like specifically what you do and maybe paint a picture for how the funds that are donated are used and, and what you look for in, um, in when you're deploying the funds? Sure. There's there's a number of things. One, uh, there, when we first when I first came on, there was a local organization, um, a, a great organization, Compassionate Care Alliance, that was doing some outreach and education in the community. They came to a, a decision at some point that they were going to close that organization down and not continue it. What we did at that moment was look at an opportunity for us to not only grant monies to organizations to provide services, but also to provide the service of education and information and outreach to our community. So that is one of the pieces that's a cog in our wheel is that we do fairly extensive public and community education programs on end of life preparedness, understanding medical decision making, and we employ um wonderful clinicians to help us with this. We make sure we have the technically um, 
correct voice delivering the information to the community. So part of our role is facilitating, but bringing in people who are really expertise. Um, and we have a, a whole series of different workshops that we do to help guide people in having conversations, getting better prepared, understanding what their options might be, and creating a healthier approach to end of life and dying. And by that, I mean an approach that says, if we plan and talk better and talk more and communicate with our family, communicate with our physicians, the chances are that your end of life experience will be a little bit more in the terms that you wanted it to be. Um, no one is ever saying that dying is not a sad and painful time. It will always be. None of us will not mourn the people we love. We always will feel that. But if we know that we honored the people we love by making sure their their final wishes were the way we helped them through that process, it's a huge difference. It's a huge sense of peace of mind and a sense of confidence that you know that others will take care of you. So that's one cog in our wheel is the education and the outreach. The other and the, the main sustaining piece that we have done since our inception is grant making. And at this point, we have granted, and I should know this number off the top of my head, I believe it's over $26 million into the community, directly into our community for end-of-life care and services. And that money, what is unique about this foundation is the money that we have in the foundation came from the community, and that money then goes back out to the community. And those resources have been deployed to organizations like hospice providers, palliative care providers, um, people who do some specialty illnesses like Alzheimer's disease, for example. At one point, there was an AIDS organization that we supported. Um, there are three children's organizations that address different aspects of end-of-life care for children with terminal illnesses. Um, there are grief programs that we are supporting. Um, so, so we look at it as a broad reach, and we really look at the term, when we think about the grants that we give, these are grants for agencies that support people through end of life. And through end of life is a very different language than at end of life. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's meaning that we look at this as a lifelong process and it's something that when you have a serious illness, it's not the first thing you think about, but it's something you think about. And how do you plan for it and prepare? So granting funds out into the community is a very important piece of what we do. Another element of our organization is forming collaboratives, and we are, as a non-patient provider, a nice neutral voice. We can bring people together who are all working at different organizations and say, let's have a conversation here about how we're doing the work you're doing and support you in that work. Um, several years ago, one of our local physicians, Dr. John Hofstorff, came to me and asked if he could get a grant to form a collaborative for improving the system of palliative care in this county, not in one institution, but in the county. And we don't really give out grants to individuals. So what we did was we helped them form that collaborative and we internally support it, give it the administrative support. If there's any expenses, we cover those expenses of the organization. So local practitioners in different aspects of palliative care come together every month. They've been doing this since about 2019. 2018 or 19, they've been coming together and talking about the system of care and how they can work better within it. 
Um, we also, this during COVID, COVID obviously for everyone, totally changed your game. Everybody had to shift what we did. So we went from doing all of our workshops out in the public and in the community to doing them all in person. I mean, to doing them all virtually. So we have a whole offering of virtual workshops. But one night when that palliative care collaborative was meeting, they talked about their concern for how difficult this was going to be for the skilled nursing facilities. And so we brought them together. And I had been meeting with the directors and the nursing directors of the skilled nursing facilities in Monterey County every single week since last April over a Zoom call to share to facilitate them sharing information, getting details, learning what to do with testing and now vaccines and best practices and all of that. So that that group of people who were dealing with such a very vulnerable population knew that they had some sense of support from people through that, through this process. That is fantastic. So I'm looking at the, the website now and you have numerous uh, online um workshops and and things and and things like basically having conversations with uh, with i think people who are or needing end-of-life care and all sorts of professionals and things like that that is it's just phenomenal um what like looking at all these and all the different events that you have virtual events what would be like some of the more common things that families don't consider i mean i've We've talked, I mean, I've talked to people a lot about the financial planning, that aspect of end-of-life care. But from your end, what do you see as the, the thing that families are least prepared for, even the individual that's, that's, uh, that's experiencing it? What, what's kind of like the thing, the, some of the common themes you see? Well, I think we're all pretty good at planning for our things, but I don't think we're as good at planning for the emotional process. So... If you don't have a conversation with your family and you are diagnosed with a really, really serious illness, there may come a time when you decide you don't want to have more interventions and curative treatment. You want to forego the curative treatment, go to comfort care, and die more peacefully on your own terms. If that conversation didn't happen ahead of time, that would be really, really hard for a family to suddenly wrap their arms around. And it is. It's really a difficult place when somebody says, this is what I want. I don't want to go for chemo anymore. I've had enough. I'm not going to get cured. It's just going to string it along. I don't want that. That's a difficult conversation for a family. But if when you're healthy, you have a conversation that says, you know, if I ever get to that point, this is really what I want to do. That allows the family to have some emotional preparedness for these really, really difficult moments. Well, I, I would have to ask, uh, so with COVID, it, it disproportionately affects older people. So you might have someone that was seemingly healthy and may have another five, 10 years of life, or they were thinking that, and then COVID comes along and, and throws, you know, really changes that. Um, and, and you haven't had this conversation. Have you seen, can you tell some stories about situations like that? Yeah, there's a lot of stories about that. And, I'll, and it's not just older people, it's people in their 40s and their 50s. Um, COVID has been a um, brutally, um, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. It's, it's picked on anybody, you know, it hasn't exactly been uh, discriminatory. It's really, it's really done 
a terrible thing to so many families. And to be frank, many of those families didn't have time to prepare. They didn't have any, nobody, no, none of us could see it coming. None of us could be in a right space for something like this. And what COVID has shown us, if anything, is how important it is to have those conversations because we don't know. We don't know the cards we're going to get dealt. We don't know what's going to happen. I mean, a pandemic. Two years ago, Paul, would you ever have thought you and I would be having this conversation over Zoom because we couldn't be in the same room together and we'd be talking about people who died alone and their family members couldn't come in and say goodbye except over an iPad or or a cell phone? None of us could have imagined it. So while there's nothing we could have imagined to help us with that moment, we can all learn from that. And we can learn the importance of being able to sit together and have painful discussions that allow us to understand what somebody wants. There were patients that didn't have that and families wanted everything done for them. And the incredible doctors and the palliative care teams and in the hospitals and the nurses and the social workers had to find the language to talk with those those family members to help them understand that the person that they love was not going to survive this. So if COVID taught us anything, it is to be prepared. Um, That's why we offer everything we do free. We offer workshops like crazy so that they're there for people to sit and learn and have those conversations and learn how to prepare and how to plan. Um, But the other thing, the other thing that we as a community really, really have to work on and put a lot of effort into is the healing process that's in front of us now. So if our numbers are going down and the vaccinations are rolling out and there are fewer of us who are going to get as seriously ill as before, what we have to turn our attention to is all of the suffering that people have gone through, the amazing amount of loss, losses on every level, you know, starting with normalcy right on on up to the to the people who've lost their loved one to the disease. So we have to look and our foundation is trying to explore this some to see what the solutions are because they're they're not right in front of our faces. We don't know the answers yet, but we do know that we need to come up with some really important solutions to help our community heal from the grief and um, get support for all of the suffering that has gone on. So you- and that's that's that is great. So those I know workshops aren't free. Uh, grant giving isn't free. Uh, that that your beautiful website is not free. Um, so, but you do have a donate button on there. So, can you talk about like a, a different ways people can help out? Um, thank you for that because you're right. None of it is free, <laughs> and and we have that donate button pretty pronounced on the on the website because we rely on the community. Um, this community has been incredibly generous to this foundation. They have helped us get to where we are. They have made us who we are, and we ask that people continue to prioritize us. Sometimes people don't think that they should bother spending a whole lot of their grant mon- their donation monies on end of life because, well, people are dying. Well, if this year has taught us anything, it's that we have to do this better. And that is our commitment to the community is that if you will help us, we will work with all of those wonderful frontline providers to help you have a better life- end of life experience and a more dignified one. Um, people can give to us directly through gifts. We can also do, um, you know, people sometimes like to do stock gifts or stock transfers or even, um, you know, your your required mandatory distribution from your IRA. Um, if you want to save on some taxes, you can give 
call or a portion of that to the foundation. And also we really ask people to consider their legacies and how they want to leave this community and what kinds of gifts they want to give to this community so that those who come behind them have the kind of support and services that are so meaningful. So there's there's a lot of ways to give and we would be eternally grateful for people to be a part of that process. We we also have a monthly giving program, which is sometimes a real easy way. You know, it's, mm-hmm. you know, $25 a month that you don't really see going out the door. It's like a few less cups of coffee someplace. Um, and it, it adds up and it's a, it's a wonderful way to support us as well. Outstanding. Uh, well, well, thank you so much uh, for coming on the program today. And if is there anything else you'd like to add before, uh, before we say goodbye? Um, I'd like to add a thank you. I'd like to add a thank you to the amazing frontline healthcare workers who took care of some of the most serious and painful and difficult experiences. They were wonderful. And we all owe those wonderful people a debt of gratitude. And I think we all need to take our pause as we hit our one year anniversary of heading home and suddenly realizing how serious this was and find the right way to express our gratitude and our love for one another and um, be patient as we work through this next year. Well, well, thank you, Siobhan. I really, really appreciate it. Again, it's hospicegiving.org. And uh, it's been wonderful talking to you about a really important subject. And um, yeah, just thanks again. Thank you very much, Paul. It's been a delight. Well, you've been listening to What's the Plan on Central Coast Power Talk, 1460 AM and 101.1 FM. I'd like to thank my guest, Siobhan Green, again. And I'd also like to thank Mr. Mark Carbonero, the greatest producer in the business. And of course, the great David Marzetti, host of the Saturday Morning Shag Bag Radio Show. Stay tuned for Business Sense Radio with Mr. Edward King up next. Kicks stomping on a dream.